Welcome to Read Aloud. Um, we're going to go ahead and get started. Our other reader, um, Judy Wu, is teaching, but she's on her way. Um, I'm happy to introduce Georgina Dodge, and she's got a wonderful story that she's going to begin the program with, and I'll let her tell you a little more about the theme of the program. Thanks so much for coming out today. Thanks, Donna. Thanks, everybody. It's great to see you. Thanks for being here. Let me get this situated so I don't have to sit forward and feel weird. Can you hear me okay? Wonderful, great. Um, Judy and I got together and talked about this read aloud and what we wanted to read and how we wanted to be thematic. And you know, you get a couple girls together and we're like, February, love, let's do love stories. And we thought, no, let's not. <laughs> you know? And we decided to talk about a topic that's been of interest to me for quite some time. Um, a few years back, I taught a course on the intersections of African American and, and Asian American literatures. And we thought, well, let's talk about that. And the reason we decided to do that, of course, you all know that February is Black History Month. Um, we thought we wanted to tie that theme in with the fact that February is also the, um, the anniversary of the Day of Remembrance. Um, on February 19th in 1942, that's the date that President Franklin D. Roosevelt signed into law Executive Order 9066, which, which authorized the relocation or internment of Japanese Americans in the, um, in the prison camps. And so we thought, well, let's bring those two ideas together, um, sort of focusing on the intersection between African-American and Asian-American literatures and cultures. So I'm going to start off with a short story. And it's not a short, short story. It's one of those long, short stories. <laughs> but I think it's a very fascinating one. And one of the things that makes it so fun is it's actually set here in Columbus, Ohio. And it was written by a woman who has some history here in Columbus and, in fact, has taught here in the creative writing department um, a while back. Um, it's by Nancy Zafris, and that's Z-A-F-R-I-S. And the title of the story is called Feeding the Stick. So how did I meet Mr. Hung of the Well Hung Express? The short version goes that his children liked me. The long version is read on. First thing I'll tell you, I'm 31 years old, about to be 32 after the summertime. Born 11 October 1965. Put it that way, and you halfway through the particulars of a gravestone. Might as well pick up a chisel and find yourself some granite. Know what I mean? Here comes that feeling of time passing. Angie Nashton, born 11 October 1965. Make the rest of this story sound like an obituary. What's so funny in there? Excuse me, but I am being interrupted by someone old, don't know any better, piping in from the living room. She's saying, better get a date with a boy before you go sign your birth certificate. First things first. Okay, someone old from the living room, we get your drift. Now we've heard from my grandma, we can get on with this story. Trouble is, I'm one of these read aloud writers, and she's listening in. I thought she was playing one of her solitaire games. Turns out she's spying. She's 80, and then some. So I guess she knows about old. She just wanna make sure she's in the story. There, now, you in the story, go back to your cards. I'm in the kitchen, got to write in the kitchen so I can get up and fix myself something between words. I have a reason for bringing up gravestones because that's what this story's got in it. You ever heard of anyone going grocery shopping for a gravestone because it's hungry and you got to feed it? And then you got to give it a telephone so it can make calls to heaven? And then you got to give it money so it can pay for those calls? You ever heard of something like that? Well then, sit back because this story's for you. 
This morning, I'm in the Big Bear supermarket shopping for the gravestone, and I find myself thinking, I bet it'd like some fresh pineapple. So there I am. I've gone crazy. I'm crazy as Mr. Hum. Ain't just thinking about feeding the gravestone. I'm thinking about feeding it something fresh. Gone, 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 and goodbye. Been hanging out with Mr. Hung way too long. The fresh pineapple got a life of its own. It's jumping out of my hands and into my shopping cart. What can I do? I just shake my head, move on down the aisle. I pick up a raisin box and read the label, Sunkiss Golden Seedless Raisins. Anyone catch on, or am I the only one? Okay, one more chance. Sun-kissed, golden, seedless, raisins. Give up? That's Romeo and Juliet for your information. It got the verse rhythm. Boom, ba-boom, ba-boom, five times. That's the Shakespeare recipe for a poem. That's when I get the idea. I should write this story down because I must know something good if I know about Shakespeare. I don't even know I knew it. And then boom, it just hit me. Bah, I remembered. Because in high school, I'm flunking enough to land me in summer school a lot. But I still be reading my Shakespeare, a, year, a, year, a play a year for four years. Romeo and Juliet, Julius Caesar, Hamlet, Macbeth, there you go. That's when I learned the way black people talk is just like Shakespeare. A fact I stored away until it came in handy right now. I was good in math too, except for the story problems. Train coming this way at 75 miles per hour, another one going that way at 60 miles per hour, where are they gonna meet? And I'm saying, what's this story problem about? Why they want to meet? They supposed to go to some city and drop their passengers off. Instead, they want to meet side by side so the conductors can stop their trains and lean out the windows and gab. Reminds me of the police. They should be going on their appointed rounds. Instead, they in some dumb part and then some dark parking lot. They got their cars twisted around in a 69 like they in love. Excuse me, officer, I got a problem. Don't bother me, we in love, smooching through the windows. But I ain't the police, so let me start my story without making you wait two hours and a half. It starts out with, out with me pulling down $60 a week in cash, working lunchtime delivery for Mr. Hung. Mr. Hung is the real thing, straight from China. His English sound like he's speaking Chinese. But guess what? I must be good at Chinese because I understand everything he say and look like I'm the only one who can. So Mr. Hung stuck with me, even though he go belly up with threats every time we make deliveries. He almost die, he's so mad. Why? Don't ask me. Mr. Hung, a hotbed type, born the year of the dog with rabies. Mr. Hung don't understand my little jokes because everything Chinese with him, even his English. So I just tease and tease, but I make my voice sober and polite. So he thinks I'm talking sense. Mr. Hung, I say, look at you. You ranting and raving and foaming at the mouth. You born the year of the dog with rabies. You got the hydrophobia yet? You scared of the water yet? Mr. Hung, is it time to tie you up and shoot you yet? Well, I guess when you got a lot to lose, you got to be an in-charge type, even if you turn into a ball of agitation with no friends. That way, you lose everything. You lose it yourself and can't blame it on the friends you don't have. That's why I am the way I am, carefree. I got nothing to lose, so I'm, I'm, so I'm just like, come see, come saw. Anything goes with me. But Mr. Hung, he got a ton to lose. He got family back in China. 
He's trying to run a business and talk business talk in English when he can't even do the normal talk. And then he got to be in charge. And when we're sitting in my neighborhood, he ain't in charge no more. You see where I'm driving? You ever hear real estate agents talk about location, location, location? We the location they talking about. The location to stay away from. I don't mean the city. Columbus nice enough, believe it or not, and not even our neighborhood. Just our little slice of the neighborhood, a long couple blocks of the Section 8 Housing Assistance Rental and Certificate Voucher Program. That's right. You want me to repeat it, or you already know what I'm talking about? Do I have to go into detail? Who you think is going to go out and knock on those Certificate Voucher Program doors with paper bags of combination plate number three and say, give me some money first? Only one kind of person is going to do it. They own kind. Every day but Monday, I make the deliveries while Mr. Hung, look at him. He watching me from the car in a fury. I only but stepped up to the first door, but already he frantic, brushing at his windshield as if some ant-sized piece of grime is going to obscure his vision of all my wrongdoing. Yes, I like to talk a few minutes to each customer, drum up business that way, personalize their orders a little bit. You want more sweet sauce for your egg roll, honey? You got it. I'm like the postman. Make them feel good. Come back tomorrow for more. Then I retreat to the car feeling fine about myself. And before I can even think about handing over the money, Mr. Hung in his car screaming, how, how, yap, yap. That's the Chinese recipe for murder in the first degree. Says he's going to have me arrested. Sometimes he's so busy screeching in there, he forgets to, un to unlock the door and let me back in. And each time I say to him, Mr. Hung, you watching the same movie every day, rerun after rerun, and every day you think I'm cheating you. Now looky here, Mr. Hung. Every single day, Lady 501A takes the shrimp chow mein with the well-hung variety rice. She keep coming back, because I find out she likes extra fortune cookies. The sister in 473 load up on the Empress chicken. Jewel Smith only used to suck on a well-hung well egg roll, and thanks to me, I got her trying the sweet and sour chicken to go with it and Mr. Howard going through all the combos in numerical order, which I know you don't understand what that means. But three out of four days, it comes to $87.44 when I get through with everyone. And when it's not $87.44, it's over $100 because I'm doing all I can to increase your business. And pretty soon, we're going to be going, doing over $200 worth of homey takeout, thanks to me, and you're going to have to pay me $20 a lunch instead of 10 and then we get up to $300, you're going to have to pay me 30 And every day Mr. Hung be so furious, shaking his head and working himself into a thunderstorm while I talk, spluttering, no, no, no. Sometimes he'd just go on and yell at me in real Chinese, and I think, I'm just like family to him. <laughs> Mr. Hung reminds me of the cowboy movies where they're hauling a wagon load of nitroglycerin up mountains and over creek beds. Guess who plays the nitroglycerin? Except he don't bother waiting until the end of the show to explode. He starts at the beginning and explodes all the way through. Mr. Hung is jabbering. Give back, give back, give back. I see money, take pocket. I say, Mr. Hung, I got a quarter tip from Mrs. Washington, which I put in my pocket because it belongs to me. And he go on with his Chinese English gobble gobble, which only I can understand. No, 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 no make joke. Black people no tip. No, no, no tip. People, no tip. Give back, give back. And then every day I got to say again, Mr. Hung, if that black person used to be married to your cousin, they might tip you. 
If that black person's your friend, they might tip you. If that black person know you working for someone don't show their appreciation, they might tip you out of mercy. By now, Mr. Hung usually be beating the devil out of his steering wheel, the windows all steamed up with the murder his breath be packing, the car rocking like hobgoblins, grabbing at it with their goo, and me sitting there wondering myself how that rocking car looked to all the people come out every day and watch our show. They hooting at us from their porch stoops. Quick, look, those two getting in a humpin' before they slaughter each other. I could think about killing Mr. Hung and skinning him alive, but Lord, I couldn't even think about taking him into bed. I just take my $60 in cash and keep it flowing into the pipeline of my photography business. Oh, I knew that was coming. Someone too old to have sense chiming in from the peanut gallery. Someone who don't think a photo business a worthwhile pursuit for her granddaughter. Wonder who that could be. Okay, you there in the living room. Grandma, you listening? Now I'm going to talk about you. You happy? My grandma run the degreaser at Clark Gray Vault during World War II. They made landing mats for airplanes. You think someone like that might have more encouraging words for her granddaughter trying to run her own business. You way ahead of yourself, she calling out from her TV tray. You got yourself a cheap little camera. Now you think you're in the photography business because you snap a roll of film. I'm trying to deliver her biography like she wants, and she interrupting me throughout. Later at Clark Gray Vault, she got moved up to Paint Dip. They painted the landing mats all of drab and then laid them out across the jungle. Got our own jungle here, she says. But, but Paint Dip better than the degreaser, I call back. Degreaser fumes knock you out, and then you fall in and get stripped to the bones. Happened more than once, she says. After the war, Clark Grave Vaults go back to its grave vaults and she go back to the bathrooms. Got a job at the GM Turnstead plant cleaning their toilets. But now it all come home to roost in her social security check. $181 in change every month and we look forward to it. Section 8, take out 80 of it. So there's your story, Grandma. The rest of the story is just about you playing solitaire all day and waiting for your drop soup to be delivered. Or you want me to mention them people in the soap opera you think is real. She laughing at that. Mr. Hung's wife get Grandma's lunch prepared special. Grandma take her rice soft and the egg foo young without the bean sprouts and the egg still dripping. And she get the egg drop soup to go with it. Oh, she loved the drop soup. Mrs. Hung prepare it free of charge and my grandma in love with Mrs. Hung. Mrs. Hung write with Mrs. Hung and write her Hallmark cards even though they never meet. Mrs. Hung the opposite of Mr. Hung, that's all I can say. She must be born year of the nice little rabbit. Don't cause no trouble and look like she done breeding, which is the only drawback to rabbits. She don't talk either, just like a rabbit. And I bet if he be choking at her death, she let out only one little sound before she die. Can't nobody be like Mr. Hung and stay in the same room with him. That room blow up in two seconds. When we're done delivering in Section 8, we move on to the Buttles. It's a building start out for senior citizens. Now everybody crippled and god-awful ugly live there, and they, always, and they always milling in front, make the old people left scared to come out. Mr. Hung don't want to make eye contact with any of them, afraid he'd get a leprosy curse. The bus stop right in front of the Buttles building, and Mr. Hung squat there in his car waiting for me. Someday, he's going to get a ticket. Okay, I tell you something. 
I worried about the curse myself from one of them cripples. His name, Mongi. That's not my name I give him, it's the name I hear people calling him. No way I would name him Mongi because that's the name I called my blanket when I'm a little girl. My Mongi get me through the night many a, t a time right after my mama took off. So when I hear the name Mongi again and see that it's got what it's got itself attached to now, it almost makes me sick to think of something so sweet and so sour side by side and a little scared about what it means. Because first off, I get a Shakespeare poem come to me in a box of raisins. And now the double meanings start to hit home in the words Mongi, which mean both a blanket and someone nasty who don't have no legs. So somebody trying to tell me something. I'm writing it down, and when I finish the poem, maybe I start to see it clear. Mongi's legs cut off, like I said, but they cut off so high make you wonder if his private's gone too. He's always broadcasting commercials about what he's carrying below. He think he got more rocket ship down there. He talk like at a whole space station, just be needing a female landing pad. Every day I'm walking by, chicken and snow pea pods for 314, never say a word to him, but believe it, he calling out to me. I'm in and out quick as I can. 314's always got the money counted and laying next to her mailbox keys. It's here's your food and here's your money and I don't stop to chat. So this day I'm coming down the stairs and there's Mongi blocking the entrance as usual so he don't go unnoticed. Anyone coming or going got to pay him some mind just to get around him. And he makes sure he's outside so he can yell at people waiting for the bus, too. Mongi don't use a wheelchair. He's stretched out on a gurney, stomach down. Then he's leaning on his arms with his head up, talking to his friends. I don't know how he travel without someone pushing the gurney for him, because that gurney rides high, coming up almost to your chest. He's got a real Ohio license plate hanging from the back of the gurney. Almost make me smile to see him touching up the stretcher he call home. Then I see he's got a new decoration, a bumper sticker next to the license plate. It read, of all the things I've lost, I miss my mind the most. <laughs> so maybe Mongi got, got enough there to have a sense of humor, or maybe he just nuts like the bumper sticker says. Mongi look over at me when I'm stepping around him and my shoulders is bunched up and my body steeled for a waterfall of nasty spittle, but it don't come. Nothing X-rated sprays my way. Don't tell me I escaped. I'm leaving here G-rated and dry as sunshine. I can't believe it. Mongi turns to me, says one word, and it about knocked me on my butt. Hi. Now he really catch me off guard. And before I know it, I've spoke to him first time ever. I say, hi. <laughs> so now, we got a relationship. When you talk to someone lonely, even someone who act like he not lonely and advertise about his privates, one word enough to start a relationship. Saying hi means now you're friends. Saying hi means now you got to keep on saying hi, and pretty soon you got to add something onto it. Saying hi means things going to get more complicated from here on out. Only one thing left to do. Never see him again, because if you do, you're going to have to say hi, and saying hi got to lead to no good. So now I tied up in knots when I get back to the car. Mr. Hung's sitting there nice. He never throw a fit in front of the Buttles building. He's afraid of the curse. He's sitting there quietly. Look like he got a thought he need to finish. I wait a minute to give him time. Then I say, Mr. Hung, we are not making any money on Buttles. The crippled people usually on special diets. Doctors won't let them buy Chinese food. Let's just stop coming here altogether.
And Mr. Hung, instead of yelling at me, he says, OK, and nod his head, not wild, but slow and thoughtful, like he actually got some sanity in there. So I say, good, that's settled, because things getting too complicated in that building. As soon as we get the place out of our sight, the curse lifts, and Mr. Hung back to his old self. That's when he bring, me, that's when he bring up about feeding his gravestone. First, he start cawing at me about how I ain't going to work for him no more. Then he asked me to do him a favor. That's why no one else can work for Mr. Hung. That and the thing they call the language barrier. Now he's telling me he's going back to China to get his nephew. His nephew, a big grown-up, not a little boy. He need a man to work for him so he don't have to put up with someone like me. I'm thinking, go on and bring him over, Mr. Hung. America, a melting pot. Don't let me stand in his way. Somebody's nephew, no threat to me. I seen them big boys from China, and they all about five foot two. Let's see his kung fu go to work in my neighborhood. Don't think I'll be losing my job anytime soon. I say, and by the way, what's the favor you want to ask me, Mr. Hung? Because you sure put me in the mood to do it with all your personal compliments. Mr. Hung telling me he's taking his whole family to China for one month. He close up the restaurant. I say, what's the problem? He tells me mostly in Chinese that he can't explain it. He got to show me what he means. And I say, well, especially you're going to explain it in Chinese, you better show me. So off we go to the back to the Wellhung Express. And for the first time ever, he invite me upstairs to their apartment. Mrs. Hung and two other ladies, they her sisters or cousins, they glance up from their steaming pots and fry vats, and there's no look on their face except blankness. Only Mrs. Hung's mouth just then gives me a quiver, just like a rabbit would. That's her way of giving me a welcome slap on the back. Now my fingers need some stretching, and while I'm up, maybe I'll eat something. My grandma calls out. I take some orange juice and soda crackers, if you don't mind. Then she says, I hear you in there. Listen, it's time you think closer to home. When you having that date with a nice man? You see a nice man, you let me know, okay? They a lot of nice men right here. Stop right there, Grandma, before you make a fool of yourself. I know what you're going to say, and they all names of boys who live in your TV set. Yoo-hoo, Grandma, guess where we're living at? Ain't nobody here nice to date. They don't even use that word date. They got another four-letter word they like better. You want me to date Mr. Howard? He's real nice. He a mathematical genius, too, going through the combo plates in numerical order. <laughs> Only trouble? He's 67 years old. He look good for his age. So does King Tut. He looks good for his age, too. Here's your crackers and juice. My fingers is all stretched, and I'm getting back to my story. Now let me say something about Mr. Hung's restaurant. They got four tables, but it's mostly takeout. You stand at the counter and look up at a big plastic sign shows you pictures of the food. It all looked good, but something always smelling funny in that restaurant. Maybe it's the ficus tree. It's dying and almost dead. They think it's so happy to be living in America, don't need water. If dead ficus leaves on the floor ain't being swept up mean good luck in Chinese, then they're very, very lucky people. Mr. Hung got two kids, a girl eight years old and her little brother, both of them in black pixies with bangs straight across. The little girl always huddled over her schoolwork, even in the summer. Make, you, make me sad to look at her. Bangs swinging off her forehead when she bend over, and then comes into view a big worry crease slicing her face in two. 
A worry crease ain't something you should be having till you're 30 or 40 years old when you start thinking life ain't all it's cracked up to be. But when you eight, usually you'd be thinking it's pretty good. Poor little girl. Her eyebrows straight as her bangs. I like seeing the children with an arch in their baby brows. Make me imagine a little rainbow, a little rainbow of happiness. But that sweet girl got eyebrows like the grim horizon. Nothing there but some kind of seriousness. Her baby brother always coloring or shooting his cars across the table. He got nothing to think about. His face just like hers, but got a big, bouncy idiot smile to it. They be taking up one of the four tables, but it don't make a difference. Nobody stays to eat here because of the smell, mostly laying low behind the garlic and oil, but coming out of hiding if you stay too long, like when you know there are a bunch of cockroaches, but they undercover. So now I tell you what's upstairs, and you're not going to believe it. First off, that's where the smell's coming from. Once you go up the stairs, it starts creeping around and come right out and attack. It start in their little kitchen and move outward. Seem almost to be stuck like tar all over the walls. It's some kind of fishy smell. Make you sick. Mr. Hung take me to a corner of the main room, and it be made into a funeral, funeral parlor, Chinese style. They got a service all set up in a kind of little house. They given the dead people more space in the room than the living ones get. In the middle of the little house, there's a stick rising up like maybe you're starting a tomato plant. But it's not a tomato plant. It's the center of importance. Guess what? The stick be the gravestone I'm talking about earlier. It's a group gravestone, got the names of dead people written on it. Don't ask me their names, because I can only hear Chinese. I can't read it. The stick's surrounded by pictures so old they come from the beginning of the photography era. In front of the stick is food and toys and a bunch of fanciful junk like they sacrifices. Like maybe the stick come to life and eat Mr. Hung's children if it don't get what it wants. The pictures interest me most because of myself being a photographer. They surrounding the stick like a halo. But the halo crooked. All the photographs is hanging crooked like they just old business cards stuck with thumbtacks. Then Mr. Hung lights some incense and hold it between his hands and start bowing to the stick. Then he show me all the food, oranges and camel light cigarettes and cups of Chinese booze you don't want to know about. Mr. Hung makes me taste it later downstairs while everyone watch and laughs at me. It tastes like rubbing alcohol and Crest toothpaste. Mr. Hung say just a minute in Chinese, then he go down and bring up some hot rice still steaming and a plate of vegetables. I say, Mr. Hung, if you got an ancestor died a baby, you obliged to leave some pampers for the stick? Mr. Hung telling me on holidays the stick get more food and other things. He telling me this because 4th of July coming up and he expect me to do something special. First thing I'm thinking, I give the stick a Budweiser instead of that crazy Chinese booze. Mr. Hung opened a drawer and take out some Chinese Monopoly money. It got the Chinese language written on it except one thing in English read, Bank of Hell. Well, that's a fine thing to do, I tell Mr. Hung. You giving the money called Bank of Hell. That's called blasphemy in English. Mr. Hung tell me burn the Bank of Hell bills on the 4th of July so his ancestors can have some money. There are about a thousand things wrong with what I'm hearing him tell me to do. First off, if you burn the money, they can't have it because it's all burnt up. 
Second off, heaven don't have a checking account at the bank of hell. Third off, what they want money for on the 4th of July. They gonna be buying sparklers and singing to George Washington? But there's no getting through to Mr. Hung, so I don't even try. I just tell myself, forget about it, because I've already decided I ain't coming up here and feeding his stick. Stick can just go on a crash diet till he come back from China with his big kung fu nephew who's gonna take my job away. Then Mr. Hung dig deeper in his drawer. He take out a pretty paper sculpture of a telephone. He going completely crazy. He say, burn that too, so Stick can have a cordless phone. I point up to the sky and pretend I hear something ringing. Telephone! Mr. Hung nod. So then, real polite, I say, wouldn't the Stick rather have a new car instead of a telephone? Mr. Hung start talking in Chinese, saying he already gave it a new car. Then I say, what about a hot tub? It get cold up in heaven, altitude so high. I'd be teasing Mr. Hung without mercy, and he don't know it. He just agree to the hot tub. They given that stick airplanes and hot tubs and rice still steaming, and I'm thinking if they can so concerned about feeding it piping hot meals, they at least ought to hang the pictures straight. Because the ancestors looking like they mad at being hung so crooked. Ain't none of them cracking the least little grin. There's the grandpa and the great grandpa and the grandma and those others, and all of them glaring at the camera. Not a single one got sense enough to think maybe my children like to remember me with a smile on my face. Sure, I understand. It'd be plenty hard to smile when you know you're getting your farewell to life picture taken. Don't matter what the photographer's squeaking in the, his hand to make you laugh. If I be the photographer, I just forget about the quacking duck and tell them the truth. I say, look, you about to die. And this is going to be the picture hanging up there, so act like you're having a good time in eternity so your children don't be fretting all the time. No wonder they keep giving you food and gifts. You look so miserable. Sound like you run a successful photo business with that duck, my grandma cackling in from the living room. I say, Grandma, if you was getting your picture took to put on top of your coffin so everybody see it during the service, how you look in that picture? I look good, she say. No, I mean, you smiling or are you not smiling? I'm smiling, she say. I'm smiling real nice. I can tell Mr. Hung real proud of his side of the family, the way he's standing there, his posture erect, making me realize I think he older than he is because of the way he usually scuttle about, like the ceiling way too low. But he got a young face and he got two young kids. We probably about the same age, and now we alone upstairs in a room together. I look at his face when it turned to the side, and I think, maybe he not so ugly he get a good haircut. Time to change the subject in my head. This is getting dangerous. So I say, this is your side of the family, Mr. Hung? And when he say yes, I say, their faces look flat, like they've been smashed with an iron. That a trait that run in your family, Mr. Hung? But the insult didn't have my usual zest. Mr. Hung just stand there smiling at his ancestors, who ain't smiling back. I say to him, would you rather have Mr. Hung, an ancestor who don't smile back, or an ancestor like my mother, who ain't even there? But Mr. Hung, he don't know what I'm talking about, so he can't give a good answer. Then he start talking again, his gong and tinkle Chinese English sounding like coins bouncing in an apron, everything like too much clanky music, and inside my head, it all going quiet. 
everything coming to a stop, everything turning off, and now it all quiet. Now it's just the swishy sound of nothing. One of them ancestors staring me down. She really got a flat face, no joke, and her picture fogging up from the hot rice till only her eyes is left. Before I know it, I'm looking back. My eyes meet flat face, and that a mistake. It's just like saying hi to Mongi. Flat face looking at me, and I looking at her, and now we got a relationship, and I got to uphold it. So when Mr. Hung asked me to feed his ancestor while he gone in China, I surprise myself and say yes. It's late. Looks like I'm in for the all night. Can't leave the story hanging. I'm writing so slow by hand and taking time out to rub my hand cramps. Don't have a computer. Maybe I get one later. My grandma already put on her nightgown and gone to bed. She dreaming of the photograph I'm going to take tomorrow. Now she don't think my camera's so useless. She's going to get all dressed up and I spend the whole roll on her till I get something extra nice. Mr. Hung's still in China, so he don't know the ending yet. When he come back, he got a big surprise waiting for him. Before he leave, his hand do a frog hop across the calendar to explain Stick's feeding schedule. Frog hop mean every other day Stick's gotta eat. First two days the Hung family gone, I be thinking all the time about what to buy the Stick. Now my chance to introduce it to American food. But I don't go over there yet, because Mr. Hung, he set off some roach bombs when he leave. I see a whole box of them. I say, why don't you get a professional exterminator, do it right, but Mr. Hung, he cheap. He only paying me $35 to feed his stick, but he giving me $50 for stick's food. That make me feel pretty real, that make me feel real worthwhile to be $15 less than a stick, but that ain't nothing new. Mr. Hung is specialist in making me feel good about myself. The third day, it's safe to go in. Roach bombs be about ready to die down. By morning, I'm in Big Bear thinking about the stick. Right away, getting it some fresh pineapple instead of, instead of should be budgeting. But how many times you get to feed a stick? Don't laugh till you try it. You have to get excited. Besides, today a big day for the stick, the 4th of July. Time for Budweiser and corn dogs, and maybe I get a sparkler I'm going to light instead of that incense. Come evening, I walk downtown for the celebration. Grandma set up her lawn chair in the empty lot. In the empty lot. Got to watch out for the dog do, but she happy sitting there with the other old ladies. There are half a million people crammed around the Scioto River, waiting for the fireworks, and the whole downtown set up like the state fair. Can hardly move, it's so crowded. Everybody drunk but acting nice. Police is everywhere, but they acting nice too. When I see the food stand for Belgian waffles, I know it's got to sample that. Got to give it a hot dog and mustard, and Stick's got to try some Dumbo ears for sure. Stick gonna be American by the time Mr. Hung come back. Pretty soon, Mr. Hung have to play at Dolly Parton music. Now I kicking myself a little bit for buying the fresh pineapple when all this good stuff lined up here in the midway that used to be on Marconi Boulevard. Everybody excited when the fireworks start blazing up the sky. Patriotic music crashing from the loudspeakers and Channel 4 news team up high in a tree trimmer bucket. It all goes straight to the reward centers of my brain and I bursting with joy. Everyone enjoy the giant pom-pom firecrackers the most. They shaking in the sky like cheerleaders, look like sparks gonna fall right on top of you. Everybody go wild. I go wild too, but extra wild. I got a secret. I'm keeping from half a million people all standing next to me. Ain't none of them gonna do what I'm gonna do tonight. 
Channel 4 investigative reporter ought to follow me home. Fireworks end. Half a million people clear out there like a clear out like they're a big hole in the ground. By the time you're walking home, the midway lonely as a halfway house, paper cartons blowing on the ground, and the beer cups all over, looking and smelling no different than a bathroom. People walking quietly, pushing strollers of kids, everybody acting like neighbors. You feel a comment you want to make, you go on ahead and say it. Someone turn around and answer you nicely, then someone answer them. By the time the walking group pass Mike's bar, we all a community, but no one say, let's go inside and share a drink. Mike's barn's not that kind of place. Don't look like anybody inside ever know about the 4th of July. Let me say one thing about Mike's bar that explain it all. If you need a beer at 8 a.m. on Sunday morning, it's the place for you. But otherwise, best to stay away. Right next to Mike's bar is a nice art gallery because that's the positive direction our neighborhood's moving in. I got some plans for that art gallery. Already my snout pressed up to the window and I'm picturing my photographs hanging on the wall. When I wake up from my dreaming, who else but Mongi comes out of Mike's bar and land himself next to me. He stretched out on his gurney, his head pop up to say hi. Now I got to say hi back because we got a relationship. He asked me do I enjoy the fireworks. That's how it start. One thing added to the high and then another thing added to that. Pretty soon you talking like you neighbors and best friends. I find myself blurting out, Mongi, I ain't gonna marry you so don't start getting any ideas. <laughs> then I move on, show him nothing but my fast disappearing back. Now I all business, I gotta stick to feed. I'm marching quick and I don't stop till I get to the well hung express and push Mr. Hung's key in the lock. In case you think Mr. Hung sure trusting her a lot, think again. Mr. Hung's best friend is Master Lock. He got everything behind bars, even Mrs. Hung's clothes, which why would I want? They all smell like mothballs. But I'm feeling good as I open the door. Mr. Hung do trust me, at least a little. Then I open the door. Mr. Hung gonna kill me. It ain't my fault, but he gonna kill me anyway. Maybe a funeral parlor in their upstairs hard for you to believe, but wait till you hear this. Mr. Hung be putting out so many roach bombs, they like real artillery shells. They actually be bombing. Now the war over, but Well Hung Express look like the losing side. Roach bombs blown a big hole in his ceiling. I stand there looking up at that hole like I'd be someone admiring the Grand Canyon. Mr. Hung make his restaurant into a tourist attraction. First floor got all the broken knickknacks he could sell. Looked like the Chinese version of the Midway after half a million people get through it. Then I'm thinking, well, it ain't my fault he's shelling his place with bombs. My hands is full of food and sticks still gotta eat. Bomb or no, stick gotta eat when the cockroach is alive, stick gotta eat when the cockroach is dead. Blown up ceiling just a consequence of unwanted insects. Don't have nothing to do with hungry ancestors got to be fed. So my brain's suddenly back to business because sometimes I got a one-track mind. I step my way through the junk and go upstairs. Plaster everywhere, but guess what? Lights still work and they shining on the funeral parlor perfectly intact, which is funny because bomb kill everything living, but leave the dead alone. Ancestors hung a little more crooked and look like they be powdered with donut beards from the plaster. 
can't get a close-up view because I just run into my second problem, this one bigger than the first. That big hole in the ceiling, now a big hole in the floor that run wall to wall. That hole in the floor now separating me from the stick. I, in the middle of World War III, could, would, could use one of them other war landing mats my grandma built to get me to the other side. Otherwise, no way to get across except the standing broad jump, and that ain't my style. Even Carl Lewis need a long running start. Okay, that's it, I tell myself. You done your duty, but you ain't jumping over no blown up hole to feed a stick. Uh-uh, no way. I bend down, arrange my food on what's left of the floor, say to the stick, you want this food? You the one gonna have to come over here and get it. And that's that. Thank you very much. It was nice meeting you. Now goodbye. I turn around and walk downstairs and hurry outside, but I stand there. Can't leave because of my one-track mind. If I ask the police to please help me feed the stick, they arrest me. If I do the standing broad jump, I fall through the hole. If I go home safe to my bed, someone else be starving and a promise be broken. Stick eat nothing for three days. Stick eat nothing for three days. My heart is beating the sounds. It ain't a Shakespeare poem, but the words are like hands reaching deep inside me. Don't know what to do, but the one thing I can't do is leave. I just stand in there lost in my worry when he be cruising up the sidewalk still after me. He pretending like he on a surfboard. Instead of ocean waves, he got a friend pushing his gurney. Hi, Mongi say. You following me, I ask. My voice is mean because I don't want no stalkers in my life. You gonna marry me, Mongi ask. Streetlight catch Mongi's face. It's always dirty and he don't shave, but now looking at Mongi, I think, you about 19 years old. Mongi, you just a kid. Now my one-track mind come up with an idea. I tell Mongi's friends, you hold him in your arms for a minute. I got to use his stretcher for a repair job. Mongi's friend's so dumb, he do exactly what I tell him. <laughs> I kick at Mongi's stretcher till it fall together and flatten up like an ironing board. Mongi watching me with a smile. Then he howling full blast when he see me dragging his home upstairs. Ohio license plate clanking on the stairs and scraping me on the shins. Now I'm sweating. Believe me, I upstairs on my hands and knees, panting for breath, but claiming victory because so far so good. Now I pushing the stretcher out in front of me like a rowboat. I shoving out to sea, got to make sure I stay on the solid land or something worse than drowning happened to me. Hole still got some rib bones of wood, keep the stretcher floating across. I sprawling my arms as far as it'll go. Then I find a book about Curious George, give my fingers a few more inches. Stretcher find land on the other side, settle into position. I don't believe it. My one-track mind come up with an idea that works. It looks like a bridge. It feels like a bridge. Mongi stretchers, the perfect fit. Everything coming together like that raisin box giving me a poem. Gift from heaven. Now it's all fitting together. I'm feeling the rhythm. Boom ba boom. Angie Nashton on her way. Now my heart beating the sounds of victory. Stick getting excited seeing me come over across the Mongi overpass. Pretty soon it's gonna be enjoying a hot dog and Dumbo ears and tomorrow I bring it some Budweiser to wash it down. Hold on Stick, here I come. I halfway across. That good feeling start beginning its departure. Now I tell you something. 
I'm afraid of heights even 10 feet up. As far as I'm concerned, I'd be in the air between two mountains, hole all around me, rib bones ain't big enough to support me when I tumble. I can see the restaurant below. I ride above the table where the little girl and her brother play. It look a long way down. Better bridges than the Mongi overpass be collapsing all the times and cars shooting into rivers. That's what gets the fear started and then I can't stop it. The picture of me falling starts making me lose my balance even though I'm on my hands and knees. So I quit laying myself flat on the stretcher like a DOA and don't think I can get up. I'm stuck there forever. Mongi's friend looking up at me through the hole. Mongi's still in his arms. How long you want me to hold him, he yella. <laughs> How long do I care? You want to put him down? Go ahead. Don't be bothering me while I'm stuck on Mount Everest. Maybe I pray to Mr. Hung's ancestors for some help. My head afraid to move, but my eyes calling up to them. Ancestors looking elsewhere except the old lady flat face, and she's peering my way. She got plaster powder on her nose, but her eyes is clear and still staring at me like they was before. She looked like she warning me to get over there and feed her, or she's going to wring my neck. She looked like she never helped me just for spite. So now it's all up to me. I seen soldiers do a crawl in combat, wiggling on their elbows so the enemy fire don't hit their heads. I seen it, but I never tried it. And TV tells so many lies, maybe this is just one of them. I got no choice but give it a try. My elbows out of strength, I grunting to give them a jolt, then one, two, my forearms tasting solid wood on the other side. Now I'm happy, but I'm also about to kill Flatface when I get over there. My hand shaking bad when I hold the incense. Don't trust myself to burn no money or paper telephone. Ancestors be staying with the Red Cross tonight anyway. Tomorrow, I get me a piece of plywood for the hole, then wire them some Bank of Hell money. Flatface don't look too pleased about not getting her cordless phone. Waiting one more day for her, for her AT&T hookup ain't gonna kill her. She's so old, they still using Dixie cups and string when she around. She don't have no reason to look so ungrateful after what I put myself through. I say right out loud, flat face, watch out for me. Gonna take a magic marker to your mouth tomorrow, you still looking so mean and nasty. You ain't the grandma either. You look as if you at least the great, great grandma. It's time you stepped aside. Let others live their happy lives without having to worry about feeding you all the time. You can't be messing around in this world for 150 years. There's a time and a place and you had it and now you're gone. Flatface don't answer me back. She can't do nothing. I say, what's it going to take to put a smile on your face? Caviar? Champagne? Some gourmet jelly beans? You ever had espresso? Flatface just look at me. Now I see something in those eyes. Remind me of Mr. Hung's little girl. They're so serious and sad, and they topped off with the same eyebrows go straight across. Now I'm feeling bad for yelling at my elders, especially when related to that little girl. Sometimes I want to take her in my arms. She's so sweet and lonely. Flat face staying here to watch out for that little girl. She ain't going to desert her great-great girl just because of some roach bombs blow up her place. After all, she stay around for 150 years, and my mama only stay around for three. Not that she die. She just go. Then it all up to my grandma, and she not one of them real young grandmas either. It takes its toll. Okay, Flatface, I see you tomorrow. By then I think I come up with a better name for you. 
Now there's only one thing left to do. Give Mongi back his stretcher and say thank you and goodbye. Don't know where that's going to lead to tomorrow. Those two words like marriage vows to someone like Mongi. Thank you, goodbye. And now comes I do. <laughs> and then I go home and here I am. Now I'm sitting here finishing up my story. Then I'm putting on my pajamas and checking in on my grandma before I call it a job well done and go to bed satisfied. Every night I do the same thing. Stand in the doorway and make sure I see my grandma's chest going up and down. Make sure everything as it should be. It take a few minutes before I can tell. Now I see she all right, her blanket moving over her soft dreams, her chest rising and falling. She okay? It rise and fall. Grandma breathing fine. She's still here. Grandma's still with us. Her dreams moving softly. Her chest rising and falling. It rise and fall. Thank you. And Judy's here. Woo! <laughs> we'll give everybody a couple minutes to refurbish and <laughs> resituate. How are you? How was class? Thank you. I know it's a little long, which is why I hesitated, but I love it. I just think it's wonderful. It's just, yeah. Did you want to talk about the story first before I get started? Or? Um, I wonder if we should just go ahead and get started. Yeah. And, um, I'm Judy Wu. I'm an associate professor. I'm Judy Wu. I'm an associate professor in history and women's studies. And I apologize for being late. I was teaching, so I had to come over here as quickly as possible. Um, Georgina and I talked about what we'd like to commemorate through this reading, and perhaps you've already talked about that a little bit. Um, but I really wanted to think about the connections across racial divides and to think about the connections through both love and intimacy and through politics. So I'm going to read you um, the beginning of a book called The Necessary Hunger by Nina Rivor. Um, and she herself, I believe, is multiracial, was born in Japan. And this book is, a, in some ways, a coming-of-age story. Um, and it both commemorates what we're commemorating this month, Black History Month, and also the Day of Remembrance, which is um, the day that is to, for us to remember the internment of Japanese Americans during World War II. But it's also a gesture towards March and March Madness and thinking about basketball. <laughs> In December of 1984, when Raina and I were sophomores, my high school held its first and last annual girls' winter basketball tournament, the Inglewood Christmas Classic. The next year, an hour before the first round games were set to start, a light fixture fell from the ceiling and left a six-foot hole in the floor. And the indignity of having to cancel the tournament once, once convinced my coach we shouldn't host it anymore. This was a shame, because the first class was the only tournament we ever actually won. It was also the place I met Reina. I was running the clock on the first day when my coach came over and told me that Reina Weber had just walked in and that I should pay attention to her. He didn't add, he couldn't have known, that a few months later, our parents would meet and fall in love, and that eventually the four of us would live together. All he knew that was that Raina and I were two of the top sophomores in Los Angeles County. That day, when her game began, I sat and watched her in awe, so dazzled by the way she slashed through the other team's defense that I kept forgetting to add points to the scoreboard. Midway through the second quarter, Raina dove for a loose ball and landed smack on the scorer's table. She'd knocked the scoreboard control box into my lap, and she lay face down, her head between my hands, where the box had just been, and her legs trailing onto the floor. Dazed, she looked up into my face for a moment. 
Then her eyes began to focus. Hey, she said, smiling. You're Nancy, right? I'm Raina. That was a hella sweet pass you threw against Crenshaw yesterday, and I knew their coach caught you, called you a hot dog because you passed behind your back. But shit, that was a defender kind of standing in your way. And besides, if you got it, you should use it, don't you think? She stood up, pulled the box off my lap, and placed it on the table, and then ran back onto the court before I had time to answer. To me, that first encounter would repeat itself in various forms through all the years I knew her. Raina would land right in front of me, and I would flounder. Basketball, for Raina and me, were more, was more of a calling than a sport. It was our sustenance. It underpinned our lives. Every Sunday morning, as I, as I drove the 28 miles from our house in Inglewood to a gym in Cerritos, I saw well-dressed people on their way to the churches, mosques, and synagogues that were scattered throughout Southern California. I was en route to my Junior Olympic team's weekend practice, but my intention wasn't really so different. That drive to Cerritos was my weekend ritual, but it made up just a fraction of the time I gave to my sport. I was reverent and devout. The only differences between my faith and theirs were that I wore, wore workout clothes instead of my Sunday best, and that I worshipped every day. Los Angeles was a great place to live if you were a basketball fanatic, because the sport was all around you. Besides being the only city that had two NBA teams, the Lakers and Clippers, it was the home to a half dozen major colleges. Better yet, the players were part of the scenery. In the mid-80s, when I was in high school there, it was unusual to run into Magic Johnson at the mall, see Byron Scott drive through the neighborhood on his way to visit his mother, or spot Cheryl Miller, the great USC star, dancing up a storm at a local nightclub. Each August, Magic, Isaiah Thomas, and other NBA stars would play pickup games at UCLA, and I'd go watch them as often as I could. The world was perfect on those summer afternoons. If Jesus himself had finally showed up, I wouldn't have noticed unless he wore sneakers and had a dangerous jump shot. In our own small way, we high school players were celebrities too. For one thing, we weren't subject to the same rules as other students. When my teammate, Talisha, got sent to the principal's office for our junior year for calling her physics teacher an asshole, well, he was an asshole. He called Talisha wench because he referred to all women as wenches, and finally she got sick of it and told him off. All the girls in the class applauded when she did it, too. The principal just laughed and let her off without ever listening to her side of the story. We were picked to win our league that year, and he refused to punish one of the people responsible for wrestling glory away from the schools around us. For another, we were always being recognized. This was especially true once our pictures started appearing regularly in the papers. And in my case, and in Reyna's, after we'd been named third team All-State our sophomore year and had begun to attract the attention of college scouts. I'd be shopping, or getting gas, or hanging out at the beach, and someone would come up and tell me that they'd see me at such and such a place playing against this or that team, and that I'd scored however many points that day. Once, when I was with Reyna at the movies our senior year, some little freshman who'd seen her play in a tournament somewhere started screaming and asked for her autograph like she was a rock star. The admiration was occasionally more ardent. I received a couple of suggestive fan letters. Some players were giving flowers or candy. And sometimes I even got phone calls from people who seemed impressed by things other than my skills on the court. After Raina moved in, we got twice as many calls. She dealt with this better than I did. She talked to all her callers politely and said that she was sorry, but she already had someone, and so it was impossible for her to meet them for a date. I, on the other hand, was not as composed. I always just got nervous and hung up. If my teammates had ever heard me say I wasn't comfortable with being a big-time college recruit, they would laugh long and hard, but it was true. 
As an only child, I lacked the social skills to shift easily into the role of a semi-public figure, and I wasn't even gifted physically, except with height. Once, after a summer league game, I found a scouting report that a college coach had left in the bleachers, and so I discovered that the official word on me was this. Nancy Takahiro, senior forward, six foot, 155 pounds. Doesn't have the best athletic ability, but a great scorer and effective rebounder. Smart, consistent, tremendously hardworking, and be counted on to get little things done. I always wondered what my father would have thought about the getting little things done part, since his refrain throughout the years that I was throughout those years was that I would never clean my room. Still, it was a textbook portrayal of the type A only child. Takahiro means tall and wide. It wasn't easy being big. It seemed to me that the world had a grudge against big people, especially Asian ones like me, who were supposed to be small. A few houses down from us, there lived an old widow named Mrs. Cooper, a lady whose skin was both the color and the texture of a walnut shell. And every time I passed her on the street, she clutched her purse a little tighter, although we lived on the same block together for the past 11 years. Short adults glanced up at my face suspiciously, even when I was being polite. Babies looked at me and burst out crying. Maybe that's why I was drawn to Reina, because she was compact, her body well-proportioned and economical. At 5'7", she wasn't tiny, but she was still five inches shorter than me. Tougher, too, or so I believed, and I felt qualified to say that because I watched her more closely than anyone else, with the possible exception of the scouts. The day she landed on the table and introduced herself, her team, which was seated eighth, was going up against the number one seed. Reyna was the shooting guard on that underdog team, and she was making all the other players look like they were standing still. She moved around the gym as if it had been built for her, not arrogantly, but with a casual assumption that everyone knew it was hers and wouldn't mind that she'd come there to claim it. She was always the first person on the court, up, up the court, always weaving through people like they were rooted to the floor, not because she was so much quicker than anyone else, but because it didn't seem to occur to her that she could fail. When she stood at the free throw line, she stared at the basket and held the ball at her waist as if she'd forgotten she had to shoot it, as if she could score the point just by concentrating hard enough. This attitude, I learned later, was typical at Reyna. She approached every aspect of the game as if it were a matter of will. And who's to say it wasn't? Over the years, coaches and parents had encouraged kids to participate on spo in sports on the grounds that sports build character. I've always thought it was more accurate to say that they show it. You live the way you play. A kid who blows an easy layup in the last few seconds of a close game is going to choke 10 years later on the witness stand. A kid who can kick a field goal to win the state football championship could be trusted to land a plane in a tornado. If there's something to be known about a person, it will become evident in the court or on the field. People with no experience in competitive sports don't understand how revealing they can be or how serious. Anyone who thinks traders on Wall Street are under pressure should try shooting a free throw in a packed gym with a game on the line. When I saw Reyna play that game, saw the way she stamped her foot against the floor in a stubborn refusal to give up, I knew my own devotion to basketball was just a shadow of what I was witnessing then. She played the game the way it was meant to be played, as if her life depended on it, and she seemed driven by some need or struggle or fundamental resolve that preceded the basketball and made it possible, and that I could never have actually accurately explained or described except to say that I myself didn't have it. The immediate effect of this resolve was that her team came back from 10 points down that day to beat the top seed, which had finished second in the state the year before. Two days later, in the semifinals, her team would lose to the team we went on to beat for the championship. But that day, the day of the first round games, was Reyna's. 
as I sat at the scorer's table watching her team celebrate at midcourt. I wondered about the guts and will that had led to that improbable charge from behind. And later, when I noticed her strong, broad cheekbones, her suddenly hesitant step, the shy grin that flashed out of that smooth coffee with cream face, I wondered about the person who owned them. Although Raina might have said I never made a fool of myself over her, I was a better judge, and I know that I did. I was 15 when I met her, and at the beginning of an awkward phase that would last roughly another decade. But I managed somehow to stumble my way into her life. We had some friends in common through Summer League and the Amateur Athletic Union. Through them, I'd find out what game or party she planned to attend and then just show it up, show up, um, show up at it myself. My main source of information was Stacy Gatling, a high school teammate of Raina's who played on my spring league team that year. She was, like us, a lover of women, or as we put it, in the family. Within a week of the beginning of the spring league, she had informed me that Raina had a girlfriend, an older girl named Tony, and gave me her opinion of the calm, cool way I tried to deal with my attraction for her teammate. She knows you like her, Nance, Stacy told me in the middle of a game one day when we were both warming the bench. It's fucking obvious. You act like a fool around her. Shit, I answered, shit. Stop tripping, girl, she said. It's all right. You know she don't want you, so just play it cool. She likes you, though, so don't mess up the friendship by acting all crazy and shit. I hadn't known that Reyna was spoken for, although I had heard she was gay. It was one of the great ironies of gossip that all the paranoid straight players who talked incessantly about who was gay actually did us a service of helping to us to find each other. That was how Stacy had heard about me, and I her. Anyway, Stacy went on to tell me that Reyna's relationship with her girlfriend Tony was extremely rocky, or as she put it, drop dead hella intense. This didn't surprise me, although I didn't say so. You live the way you play. I would say that each love has a moment when it makes the mark on your poetic consciousness, when it rearranges the way you see both the love itself and through it your entire life. For me, that mark was made the next July when Reyna and I and a hundred other recruits headed off to a nearby college to attend Blue Star. In theory, Blue Star was a basketball camp, an instructional week, but in truth, it was a glorified meat market. And it would become more so in the next few years as the popularity of women's basketball grew. That summer, two or three hundred vultures from colleges all over the country sat perched on one side of the stands and watched us, the main attraction, numbered and thrown out into the court like performing animals. Blue Star was big business, invitation only. We got free basketball shoes from Converse and a navy and red camp t-shirt that would unravel from after the first time we washed it. Although we were all under great pressure to perform well and raise our stock with the scouts, the most important event of that week, for me, had nothing to do with basketball. On the second to last evening after our afternoon games, Raina enlisted me to, to scoot back up to the dorms with her to beat the crowd for dinner. It was seven o'clock by then and still light outside, although the sun was low and muted. We took a shortcut and started through what looked like a little patch of woods, but after the initial clump of trees, we stumbled into a clearing that was invisible from the road. Holy shit, said Raina softly, and I knew that all plans to be early for dinner were out of the window. She walked off toward the little pond that was tucked into a corner of the clearing. Green and yellow stalks were shooting out of the water, and a few ducks were sat communicating in the middle. All the greenery was darker than it might have been in broad daylight, as if the moisture from the insides of things had been pushed out to the surface, so that everything assumed a richer color. I followed Reyna from maybe 20 feet behind, watching her steps get smaller as she got closer to the edge of the water. The grass extended halfway up her legs, and her thin shoulders rolled back as she turned her head to look at something. Nancy, she said without turning, come here. I worked my way towards her through the long yellow grass. 
A few feet in front of us was a bunch of ducklings, little brown balls of feather and fur. They were waddling around, bumping into each other, peeping, falling down. And told you to look at Reina as she was staring at them, eyes bright as if lit from within. I felt, suddenly, that I was intruding on something and backed away. She didn't seem to notice. She just kept standing in the grass, motionless, as I stood there watching Reina watch the ducklings. It just hit me. Boom. I couldn't have explained what it, was, what it was that moved me so much. All I knew was that the sight of Reina absorbed in something, oblivious to me and to everything else, touched off such a tangled search of imagination, pain, and desire that I had to take a few steps away from her to keep from falling over. It was as if something had cracked in me, had opened up, suddenly, into some other place I knew nothing about. So it was ironic, to say the least, when my father leaned forward at Summer League the next week and asked about the gorgeous, straight-backed woman sitting in front of us in the bleachers. A few weeks later, he asked Raina's mother out for dinner, and Claudia blinked a few times and said yes. I figured they'd go out once or twice, maybe, and that would be it. It wasn't. Even after it became clear, though, that there was really something going on between them, it took a while to register with me. Part of it was that my dad had dated several women since my mother left when I was six, and I had learned not to have expectations. Also, I rarely saw them together. They tended not to spend much time at our place. And of course, it was just too strange to consider the fact that my father was dating the mother of the girl that I liked. My father, Wendell, like me, was large. 23 years before, he'd been the only Asian named to the All-State High School football team at linebacker. He got his optimism and sense of humor from his father, who was a shopkeeper before his internment during World War II and a gardener after it. His size came from his unusually tall mother and also from consuming, as he put it, lots of meat. Now he was a math teacher and assistant football coach at a high school a few miles from our house. My father was a popular teacher. Kids came to talk to him about their problems and he gave his players rough bear hugs when they were doing something good on the field. He was a kind of cheerfully macho big man who could get away with crying, which he did every year at his football banquet <laughs> and at home during Eight is Enough. <laughs> he was still to have an athlete for a daughter. The first time I beat him at one-on-one, -on -one, the summer I turned 12, he slapped me on the back and gave me a beer and moaned about getting old. <laughs> Claudia said he was adorable. I didn't know about that, but when I looked at other people's fathers, or at least the few who were around, I knew that I was luckier than most. I finally realized that his relationship with Claudia was serious when it occurred to me that he was almost never home. Normally, even when he was seeing someone, he wouldn't take her out very often. He blamed finances, claiming that it was too expensive to pay for a babysitter, and then dinner for two. Instead, he invited the woman over, cooked dinner for her, and then all three of us would watch a rented movie. Occasionally, the women would spend the night, and my father would look embarrassed in the morning. He'd never stay over at her place. The woman would eventually get tired of this arrangement, accusing my father of being cheap, antisocial, or completely unromantic. <laughs> I didn't think that was accurate or fair. The truth was he didn't want to leave me. I'd been his main companion since my, father's got my parents got divorced, his sidekick, his second-in-command. When I was younger, we'd watch cartoons together, usually Bugs Bunny or The Roadrunner, and if I left and went to a friend's house, he would watch them by himself. After I beat him at basketball, though, he started taking me to bars. We'd go to Gardenia, a Japanese-American town where it didn't matter that I was almost a decade from legal because the bartenders were all his friends. My father believed in the redemptive power of heart talk, heartfelt talks with strangers. He taught me always to tip the bartender well and never to drink cheap beer. After he met Claudia, though, he started going out more and leaving me at home by myself. From the way he'd behaved with past women, I'd expected him to make a big production out of presenting her to me. 
but he didn't. He was too far gone to care. He and Claudia went out to movies and dinner and basketball games, and he even spent the night at her apartment. I'd never been jealous of my father's girlfriends. His priorities had always been obvious, and I wasn't jealous of Claudia either, but for an entirely different reason. I was 16 by the time he met her, old enough to drive, and it was easier to have my own social life when my father wasn't around. With his attention taken up by Claudia, I could stay out later, have friends over, spend more time alone. Sometimes, though, he'd still go through the motions of asserting parental control. You are grounded, he'd say, after I broke some household rule. Then he would leave for the weekend. <laughs> Raina didn't seem too rattled by our parents' relationship either. We ran into each other at college games and high school tournaments throughout the fall and winter of our junior year. But we didn't often refer to our parents' romance and only acknowledged it, only acknowledged that it existed when one of us asked the other to give the corresponding parent a message. Ask my dad to pick up some cereal on the way home tomorrow, I'd say. Or tell him his friend Kenneth called. The novelty of it, the irony, soon wore off for both of us, and the relationship faded quickly into everyday, everyday life. There was, there was something I noticed about the way children of divorce dealt with their parents' post-marital love lies. We never get our hopes up about anyone new, but on the other hand, we were never surprised. They moved in on the third Sunday of August, 1986. Although my father and Claudia had taken Reno and me out to dinner a month before to tell us this was happening, I didn't really believe it until they showed up that morning with a U-Haul full of their stuff. I was both annoyed and thrilled about the move, drunk with the idea of seeing Raina more often, but unhappy about sharing the house. I had no idea what Raina thought. She didn't talk much to me or anyone else. When I'd seen her at parties, there'd always been people around her, but they kept a respectful distance. I intended to do the same, as much as possible. Raina seemed poised, mature, in control of herself, completely out of my league. The day they moved in, Raina and I helped bring boxes in from the truck where our yellow lab, Anne, after Anne Myers, the first woman to try out for the NBA team, stood ears up on the driveway supervising. Occasionally, a neighbor would stop by to help and look at Claudia and Raina curiously, interested in the spectacle of two black women moving into a Japanese household. There were a couple of people, too, not people we were close to, who glared at my father disapprovingly, but they were the same ones who had always looked at us with vague suspicion and disapproval as I tried not to pay them any mind. My more immediate concern after I accepted that they were staying was that Claudia and Raina thought of the house. It always looked to me like a huge cardboard box. It was exactly the right color, and the crumbling stucco gave it a rough, unfinished feel. The garage faced the front, but we didn't use it for the car because the door was cracked so dramatically, the fissures running from ground to roof that you couldn't lift it without breaking into pieces. Our driveway was a network of small, interwoven cracks, like a flat expanse of bone-dry earth. The two shrubs by the front door reached up toward the sun half-heartedly, as if uncertain they wanted to grow. Claudia watched all the moving activity from the chair my father had set up for her on the scraggly front lawn. He told her to take it easy, although she was muscular and fit, and could probably have lifted as much as we jock types. No problem at all, he gasped from under a large box. He was still trying hard to impress her. Our place was big for that section of Inglewood, two stories and three bedrooms, one of which my father used as a study. It had been cheap when he bought it in the mid-70s, a time when, as its first owner, a white man had put it, the neighborhood was starting to turn. We'd moved there right after my parents divorced because he wanted to escape the white suburb where my mother had insisted we live, a place that I too had hated because the kids there hated me, and go back to a place more familiar to him, more like the racially mixed working-class neighborhood in Watts, where he'd grown up in the 50s and 60s. My mother had stayed behind in Rolando Beach, eventually marrying a white lawyer whose bully son had beaten me up on a regular basis. 
She was horrified by my father's choice in the neighborhood. Inglewood, when we moved there, was already quite poor, but things had gotten worse in the next 10 years after the economic benefits that Reagan had promised. Instead of trickling down, trickled out. At first, our neighborhood had been also been more mixed, but gradually the whites, Asians, and Latinos moved down to the other places, leaving a bunch of black families and us. I didn't sleep much the week that Claudia and Reina moved in. At night, I lay rigid, eyes open, pondering the facts that there were two more people in the house and that Reina was just on the other side of the wall. Daytime was awkward. We were all overly conscious of each other and careful, especially my father, who ran around the house like a mad scientist tending to his wildest experiment. Reina, meanwhile, was friendly to my father and me, but distant, as if she were a temporary guest who had to be tolerant of us because we were putting up with her for the night. My father didn't seem to notice because he had his hands full with Claudia. She often worked late at her job in the circulation department of the Los Angeles Times, but when she was home, he floated around, grinning as if he couldn't believe he, she was gracing our house with her royal presence. He'd bring her roses he bought from stoplight, stoplight vendors and serve her breakfast in bed in the morning. She indulged his behavior patiently, but she was obviously flattered. I can't remember the last time the man spoiled me this way, she said. I'm sure it won't last for long. Okay, I'm going to stop here. But I really encourage you to, finish, uh, to read the book if you have a chance.